I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, ominous and gibbous. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is thoroughly known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double Shadow, Clark Ashton Smith Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering and cueing that weird science fiction music here. The seedling of Mars. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. we're back. And happy one day after your birthday, Clark Ashton Smith, when we're recording yes. this. Born January 13th, but this is January 14th, and this episode won't be out for you for a bit, so. Does that make him a Capricorn? The best of uh, all zodiac signs? We'll have to look up his sign. I found something kind of exciting between this time and last time we recorded. When you buy the Kindle versions of the Nightshade books uh, for the various collections of Clark Ashton Smith stories, which I had already done, obviously, for the show and because I wanted to have the commentary, you get a significant discount on the Audible versions of the same books. So I managed to pick up all five of them for uh, the around $16. Um, but I'm not an Audible member. I'm, this is not a paid endorsement or anything. It's just something really cool that one of our listeners gave me a heads up about, and I went to check it out, and I could also do it. But then another listener who didn't own the Kindle books gave me a heads up that he was getting full price, and that's how we figured it out. So far, the the readers have been very good. Uh, the one thing that somebody else who owns them told me is that they don't have the extra commentary at the end, like in the books. For me, that's not a big deal because, one, I already own the Kindle books. And two, if I want to read that kind of commentary, I generally prefer to read it either on a screen or in print. So for me, that wasn't a big deal, but I feel like that's various caveats that we should put in there. But I'm very excited. I listened to both of this week's stories, again, in audio version, and that was great. That's pretty cool. Heck of a deal. Yeah. Heck of a deal. I I was very happy about my Christmas money. Uh, so The Seedling of Mars begins our new uh, cycle of uh, our new setting of stories mm-hmm. for Clark Ashton Smith. It's going to be four stories set in Mars. Uh, in Mars and on Mars and also around Mars and a little <laughs> bit on Earth with an occasional mention of Venus. So yeah. it's a real cosmic milieu for us to enjoy. And I have thoughts about Venus, but I guess we'll, we'll get to Venus. <laughs> Finally, we'll get to <laughs> Venus. <laughs> so The Ceiling of Mars was originally published in the fall of 1931 in an issue of Wonder Stories Quarterly. And that's it. That's I, I couldn't really find anything else about Wonder Stories Quarterly or this particular issue. If you look at the, uh, actually, Ruth or Tim, did you read mm-hmm. the like back matter on from the story in the in the um, Nightshade editions? Because I didn't. You know, I did not either. I can pull it up, however, right now and take take a glance at it for after. I only ask because I think I saw like I read it on Eldritch Dark, and I think I saw at the end of the story there was a little notation that said like from a plot by somebody else, which makes me really interested in after yeah. a plot by F. M. Johnson. Yes, ah. yeah. I'll take a look at that. Um. This is one of the first stories that we've covered that I can say is I feel is really through and through sci-fi. 
Like, yeah, it's a little totally. bit weird. Yeah, but but honestly, this is a a total sci-fi story. It feels very much like a '50s sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I assume that the '50s sci-fi movies were probably also written by the '30s sci-fi writers yeah. or adapted from them. It was in the fall of 1947, three days prior to the annual football game between Stanford and the University of California, that the strange visitor from outer space landed in the middle of the huge stadium at Berkeley where the game was to be held. That's it. That's the first <laughs> reading. <laughs> and that is, that is definitely not how any of his other stories have started no, so No, that's so cool. Um, just a, a note, this is obviously a, some kind of flying saucer alien invasion story. And something that's interesting, even though this was written in, well, I, it was published in 31. It was probably written around then too. But the fact that he sets it in 47, 1947, in the real world, uh, in around June, July of 1947 is when the, all of the big UFO mm. stuff was happening. That's yeah. So Ken, wow. Kenneth Arnold cited those the quote unquote flying saucers, where we actually got the term flying saucers from, in June 1947, and the Roswell crash happened in June July uh, 47. So just wow, strange little occurrences. That's there. too much for me to handle. I have yeah. to go into my bunker now <laughs> yeah. and think about this for a little while. <laughs> this is like when Clark Ashton Smith discovered atomic theory. Yeah. I mean, not, didn't exactly, but you know, he JPL'd it. <laughs> So I have a little information on the history of this story. Hugo Gernsback, who uh, was apparently part of Wonder Stories Quarterly, had a contest uh, with editor David Lassler for the best interplanetary plot for the spring 1931 issue. Readers submitted the best seven plots and would win cash prizes, and the plot would be assigned to a professional writer for further development, which is kind of an interesting way of doing it. So you have a reader throw in a plot... Anybody can do it. Kind of like what we did with our werewolf things, yeah. and then people turn them into stories. E.M. Johnson, Johnston rather, of Collingwood, Ontario, won second prize for this idea called The Martian, and Lasser offered it to Smith, saying, we have no objections to your revising it as long as the fundamental idea is retained. We're perfectly willing to pay, willing to pay you your usual rate for a completed story. He wrote the 16,000-word story in less than a week. And wow. it, like, this is really one of his uh, longer stories compared to a lot of stuff. So that the plot was pretty good and the job wasn't so disagreeable as it sounds. He then received hundred or $118 and it was published in the fall 1931 issue. So very quick turnaround right there. It was originally called The Planet Entity and then changed to The Seedling of Mars uh, later on. Huh. Yeah, so that's very background cool. on why he was writing this. But he made it very Smithian, despite everything. He certainly did. So what's happening? This This strange craft lands in the football field and... How, do, how does the Earth react? Earth is very confused and nothing happens. <laughs> they just, they, they wait. They're like, somebody got to come out? You, they're, they're, they've got people there waiting. No, nobody's going to come out. Everything's blockaded off. Nobody's coming out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they've got snipers set up. Nobody's coming out. So this goes on for a while until people actually start getting really frustrated and being like, this is ridiculous. They probably all died in flight, you know, or they can't handle our atmosphere. Something's wrong. And we just need to clear this piece of rubble away. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of this story. It happens right in the beginning. And it, mm -hmm. I'll just read the passage. Uh, he, he writes, 
In collegiate circles and among sports lovers, the feeling was that the strange vessel had taken an unwarrantable liberty in preempting the stadium, especially at a time so near to the forthcoming athletic event. A petition for its removal was circulated and presented to the city authorities. The great metallic hull, it was felt, no matter whence it had come or why, should not be allowed to interfere with anything so sacrosanct and of such prime importance as a football game. That's great. <laughs> that feels like a very modern sentiment. Yeah, it's it's totally realistic too, honest. Like, yeah. if something like that landed in, say, I don't know, Pittsburgh yeah. in the stadium. You get spacecraft fatigue. Yeah, the Steelers fans would eventually be like, and we're moving this. But th- so this is my question about the whole opening of the story. So when I read it, I was I thought, oh, this is happening over a couple months. But then I think that there's a little bit where it reveals that all of this is happening over the course of like a yeah. day. Because it's like they set up the snipers, people gather, they're all confused, they circulate this petition, and then it's like 9 a.m. the next right. day, a committee arrives <laughs> yeah. to deal with it. Which is yeah. really weird because it sounds like it's months, but it's I guess it's not. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling when I first read this that it stretched over weeks, but you're right. It's just a hyper-compact compact day. A lot of people were doing a lot of things on that day. <laughs> it's kind of like the internet. It's like the internet existed back then because, you know, a story can just build, yeah, surge, right. reach critical levels, and then die off in one day. So what you're telling me is that in this story, Clark Ashton Smith invented UFOs, mm-hmm. invented the internet, Mm-hmm. And also invented uh, tensions between Chinese Soviets, the <laughs> Russians, Germany, and the U.S. Because that's and, also mentioned. Yep. <laughs> and definitely the internet news cycle as well. Amazing. What an amazing <laughs> man. Yep. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mr. Smith. <laughs> so at any rate, at 9 a.m. the next, well, they, they form a committee to deal with this situation. Um, and the committee is like a team of adventurers, scientists, reporters. And then later on, we learn that there's like a mayor of the city and a police chief yeah. on the. It's all so, as Tim said, it's so 1950s sci-fi, yeah. all of this. Mm-hmm. Like, even if they think it might be the Russians. Yeah, small town yeah. governments yeah, involved. Yeah. I mean, this guy is an assistant astronomer. <laughs> yeah. One of our main characters is just an assistant astronomer. Like that plucky young guy in a suit. They couldn't send the big guns out for the spacecraft. Yeah, the committee comprised of 40 men in total. Yeah, we only really get to know two of them, and they like present basically our two opposing viewpoints on what's going to happen. One is the assistant astronomer professor uh, at the Mount Wilson Observatory, Dr. John Gillard. And he's like a freewheeling, open-minded dude who's like, yeah, there could be life on other worlds. I don't care about science, <laughs> but I do care about it. I just think it could be whatever we want it to be. <laughs> and then the other guy is Godfrey Stilton, who I refer to in my notes as Dr. Stuffshirt. Um, <laughs> I think that's fair. Who's a professor of astronomy at the at the UC. Uh, and he is like, everything that I said about Dr. John Gillard, just reverse it, and that's Dr. Yep. Stilton. He's like... Oh. And he's like an empiricist, and he's, I mean, I have a lot to say about these guys, but I guess I can wait till later. He's just basically like the authoritative voice, the like, you know, science is what it is, and things that don't make sense can't exist, right. et, cetera, et cetera, But he's also a negative mm-hmm. Nelly. Oh, such a negative Nelly. He's not, he, if he's going to be open to empirical stuff, it better be double-blinded. So they get there. At 9 a.m., as the story points out, exactly <laughs> at 9 a.m., the committee arrives. They approach the ship, uh, and they're getting ready to... They bring, like, workmen dudes with oxyacetylene torches in case they need to cut it open. And they're examining it, and the way he describes it is it's like a metallic copper ship with all these weird angles and these uh, violet ports on it. 
with one port bigger than the the rest um and it, there's like a film that you can see through in each of a these mauve transparency yeah and they can see inside and they're looking inside they don't see anybody moving around so they're examining the ship and then the big port opens silently and then a ladder comes down silently and then they notice an escalator even yes yeah an escalator you invented escalators too Gosh. <laughs> i think those were on beforehand Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. So then doing what anybody would do when a spacecraft opens up in front of you, they they enter. A few don't, but most of them just go in. Yeah, and I, I have to say that this did not go the way I was expecting yeah. it to. Uh, this whole story is filled with surprises. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth, what did you expect to have happen? I'm curious. Like, What, what um, were you thinking was going to happen? I was thinking that they would, they, okay, so when I heard the seedling of Mars, what I was thinking of was something that's actually a little more like what happens at the end of the story. I thought that Mars was sending some sort of craft where when they walk inside, they would become either pod peopled or maybe they would, uh, they would find this, this seed thing that would then start growing, starting with the football stadium and like either take over the world or bring new life forms or something. Yeah. And even when the next thing happened, I thought maybe that they were going to be, that the, the planet entity was going to be seeding Mars with them. It really, I really did not see anything coming in this story, which was kind of fun. Yeah. But what actually happens is the door closes behind them and the ship blasts off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, I think they mentioned it here, but they mentioned it later too. Like it blasts off and it's like going so fast and so high up. And there's this weird little world detail in here where the people on board are like thinking to themselves how even the rocket ships that are currently used to fly around the globe don't go this fast, mm-hmm. which is like a weird little, oh, we're also in a world with rocket ships yeah. uh, kind of detail. And when they get on these couches, fortunately, they find out that, oh, it's actually not too bad. It's like some sort of gravity is, uh, anti-grav field is coming out of the couches. Yeah, which was kind of weird. They explore the ship and they find all of these machines and alloys that are strange to them, but there's still no people. And there's, Mm-mm. is this where they find the controls or is that later? That's later. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> but yeah, the, the gravity starts, the Earth gets further, further away. And I like the way that he uh, describes the ship kind of spiraling up. Stilton, who, Stilton is also a kind of cheese. So I don't, I think about him as this very indignant mouse. <laughs> This, this bespectacled and yeah. indignant mouse. He always has his arms crossed. It's a huffy mouse. <laughs> this is damnable, spluttered the indignant Stilton, as soon as he found that the powers of locomotion and breathing were reasonably subject to control. It is contrary to all law, decency, and order. The U.S. government should do something about it immediately. I fear, observed Gallard, that we are now beyond the jurisdiction of the U.S. as well as that of all other mundane governments. No plane or rocket ship could reach the air strata through which we are passing, and we will penetrate the interstellar ether in a moment or so. Presumably this vessel is returning to the world from which it came, and we are going with it. Absurd! Preposterous! Outrageous! Stilton's voice was a roar, slightly subdued and attenuated by the fine atmospheric medium. I've always maintained that space travel was utterly chimerical. Even Earth scientists haven't been able to invent a space ship, and it is ridiculous to assume that highly intelligent life capable of such invention could exist on other planets. How then, queried Gallard, do you account for a situation? The vessel is of human origin, of course, 
It must be a new and ultra-powerful type of rocket ship devised by the Soviets and under automatic or radio control which will probably land us in Siberia after traveling in the highest layers of the stratosphere. Dr. Yeah. Stuffshirt, man. He just, he won't accept the facts no. of the matter. No, it's staring <laughs> him in the face and he still won't accept it. So then they find the controls and they start experimenting with them and they can't, uh, Dr. Stuffshirt in particular, because he wants to try to steer it, he can't make it turn, but then he also burns his finger on something that's super cold. And at this point, everybody kind of realizes, wow, we really do not control this yeah. ship. Like, the controls are locked in. But the, the ship is like, no, no. Whisks open doors in quiet Star Trek fashion. Yeah. And Buffet. Yeah, when they get hungry, Water. it gives them food. And as, as they keep going, they become aware that they're heading straight for the red planet, which is becoming bigger and bigger, and they see its various forms. And then they actually get close over it and discover that Mars is a little bit different than what we thought. The scientists studied this terrain in ever-growing amazement and excitement as the true nature of the veining canal was forced upon their perception. It was not water as many had heretofore presumed, but a mass of pale green vegetation, of vast and serrate leaves or fronds, all of which seemed to emanate from a single, crawling, flesh-colored stalk, several hundred feet in diameter and with swollen nodular joints at half-mile intervals. Aside from this anomalous and super gigantic vine, there was no trace of life, either animal or vegetable, in the whole landscape. And the extent of the crawling stalk which netted the entire visible terrain, but seemed by its form and characteristics to be the mere tendril of some vaster growth, was a thing to stagger the preconceptions of mundane botany. So yeah, they get down to the surface of Mars. No, I haven't landed, but they're like sailing along the surface and along the canals of Mars and realizing that the whole thing is sort of encircled. As I envision, it's like every canal is actually sort of full of this weird like root plant mm -hmm. thing. The story makes a big deal. They bring it up again, but I guess we'll bring it up here. The, the story keeps making a big deal of this thing not being either plant or animal. Right. Like, like Clark Ashton Smith had just read something about, like, or played a game of, like, 20 questions. <laughs> and it's like, animal, vegetable, or mineral? And he's like, it's both. <laughs> Which is, it's like, it's just, a, it's, it's an interesting marker of, I guess, maybe the science of the times. I have no idea, but they, they mm -hmm. bring it up, like, the plant thing later in the story brings it up himself, that he's neither plant nor animal, yeah. but he's a combination of both. At this point, I thought about the uh, third episode of Doctor Who, the 2005 Christopher Eccleston, and uh, the tree girl at the end of the world. When he, t he takes Rose to watch the end of the world, and there are these trees. They're, they're both plant and sentient, which is kind of cool. Hmm. I mean, they're actually just, you know, they're people made up to look like trees, right. but their makeup is kind of nice, and they're kind of pretty. And he breathes on them, which is very sexy. Well, this thing's not it, pretty. Anyway, this thing, this thing is not pretty is nor a, sexy. It's as big as the Alps. It has giant eyes that he keeps describing both as like lakes and like telescopes. And then it's got these giant vines just coming out off of it into the planet and into the canals. And it's watching them as, as it lands. I mean, once again, we get like the, the sort of running theme of these two characters like Stilton keeps saying this isn't possible right. and uh, 
Dr. Hippie is like, hey, man, this is all being orchestrated. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? I can't believe what's happening. Outrageous! <laughs> I think we've each set this story in a slightly different world in our own minds. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay, you know? That's all right. Um, so finally they land. Is it in a certain particular area that they that they that the ship lands, yeah. or is it just like it's in a it's in a clearing that's right in front of the big giant uh, head, I guess we'll call it, mm-hmm. of the plant creature. Um, so yeah, right. so it's he compares it to I think like a forest glade. So there's a big clearing with all these giant vines all around it, and the vines um, palpitate. Like it's got a heart. Yeah, so they're always like kind of shivering. They tremble like plumes. And they're flesh colored guys. That's gross. But it it accounts though for the um for the color of Mars. Because let's be honest, Mars is not green. Mars is not green. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh so they they are now on the ground and they tr- like approach the creature and I don't remember the other experiments are, but one of them tries to cut it, which is a mistake. Yeah. I, I can't <laughs> help but thinking. Um, so he tries to cut it and gets like, you know, the tendril, the tentacle like moves and knocks him back. I don't think he dies, but like he Yeah, flies, no, it, you know, it leaves him bruised and stunned. Which uh, seems legit. Yeah. Don't yeah. cut the planet entity. No. Yeah, don't do it. Just don't do it. <laughs> Uh, so at this point, I don't really know what the thing was waiting for, but right now, um, at this juncture, a new thing sort of sprouts out of the ground. A man organ. He calls it a man organ. The thing grew like something in a slow-moving picture, lengthening out and swelling visibly with a bulbous knob at the end. This knob soon became a large, faintly convoluted mass whose outlines puzzled and tantalized Gallard with their intimation of something he had once seen but could not now remember. There was a bizarre hint of nascent limbs and members which soon became more definite, and then, with a sort of shock, he saw that the thing resembled a human fetus. So it starts off like a penis and then it turns into a fetus. Are you saying that he one he once saw his own penis and then couldn't remember what it looked like? Yep. I'm just saying it lengthened out, swelled visibly, and had a knob at the end. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying it reminds him of something and he can't recall he, what it is. And he calls it a man organ. He doesn't think about penises all the time. He's like, and he no. never looks in the mirror? No, well, he doesn't. he's like, nah, what does that remind me of? That seems vaguely familiar. <laughs> He probably doesn't look at it much when it's doing that. Right. He's too busy looking at the hot young astronomy student that he's plowing. Whoa. Do you think that he does that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> he's a Clark Cashin Smith character. Speaking of plowing, then this thing becomes a man <laughs> and plows his mind to learn English. It's true. That's really freaky. But it also, it, it grows into like a copy of him, yeah. right? It's yeah. Like, it's like imitating the way that he looks. And his clothing and his shoes. Which is I, probably nice for the other scientists because that would just be awful. Well, right. That's probably why, why it does it. Now, do you think it I, – I kind of got the feeling that it was – it kind of had some power over him because he like talks for hours teaching this thing English, kind of unbidden. I feel like it has some sort of – well, the same – so it has obviously this telekinetic – ability to reach all the way down to earth with the spaceship and control it from there so i feel like it must have some kind of uh strong psychic energy 
even if it's not using it for the most part. Right. So yeah, I, I would say that it gets psychically involved with him. And so yeah, he just talks hours and hours about the English language. That's kind of cool. Like it, it. Uh, I like this aspect of the story of this alien being um, well and truly alien. Yeah, like it doesn't mm-hmm. just somehow know English. It, like makes an attempt to look human. I think is kind of is kind of fun. It's like a very non Star Trekian alien in that sense, and in, in that mm-hmm. it is it doesn't just have like like half a black face right. and half a white <laughs> right. face, you know? Yeah, <laughs> or just some crinkly bits on his on his nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a nose alien. Yeah. So yeah. it's it talks to uh, what's his name? Just call yeah. him Doctor John. Doctor John. Doctor John. Uh, That's what he has his students call him. So it talks. <laughs> it talks to. Dr. Oh, Doctor John. <laughs> and it tells him uh, what it what it wants. It's saying. Basically, I am a god. I'm like a god to you. That's all you can do to understand what I am. Like, I'm in complete control here. I'm in complete control. What I need from you is water from Earth. And I want you to go back to Earth, and I want you to broker a deal for me, your god, and get me some of that water. You won't even miss the water that I need from you. It's I, the, the plant lord, I got to say, when I got to this story, this part of the story, I think both times that I read it, I had the same impression, which is that I I don't care where the story goes or what Clark Ashton Smith is clearly trying to say in this story. I don't friggin' trust this plant lord. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, he's yeah. clearly, A, a bit of a dick, and B, super dangerous. He's scary. Like, he, he's scary. He straight up says that he murdered every other race yeah. on Mars. Yeah. Like, he just yeah, says he it. Did. He's just like, yeah, I killed them all. They were dangerous to me, and I yeah. killed them. And he also promises like, to teach them... The, basically the secrets of the universe if they just give him a little water yeah which i so for me i would say sure this is kind of a good trade depending seeing as he can already send spaceships to earth right that's my yeah, thought absolutely though. so this it, it was a this is a difficult moment for me in the story because up and up to this point i was like man screw dr stuff shirt <laughs> i want to hang out with dr john right but then of course Dr. Stuffshirt hears this and is like, we'll never make that deal. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want to make that deal either. I don't want some crazy, who knows what kind of deal this actually is. It seems super sketchy. Yeah, I was thinking mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially thinking about the title of the story, The Seedling of Mars. I'm waiting for it to come back around to that. But also, if I had read up to this point and you had told me the ending of this story, I would have smacked you in your face and called you a liar. That this story would <laughs> not end like that. So just it's hold true. on. This, yeah, this story it contains multitudes. It contains <laughs> like. <laughs> not only does it have the internet, but yes. it has everything else in it. Yeah. Uh, but I also have questions like if he's such a plant lord. Yeah. If you are such a plant lord, plant lord, <laughs> you can't figure out a better way to get yourself water than, than like, why are you even offering a deal? I would have scooped up the water with my spaceship. No, Maybe he gets my off pl- on I it. Just... I think he gets off on it because I think he's smarmy. He doesn't want company. He's been sitting on Mars for millennia. Yeah. And True. also, he's a peeping Tom. He just stares at Earth. <laughs> <laughs> he even says he doesn't maybe need company. Maybe he's lonely. He says he doesn't get lonely. He says he's got everything oh, in himself to keep himself occupied. I guess he contains every eventuality of evolution. <laughs> it's so... That's what well, he, he says. He is awesome. pretty good at like stretching out long, hard, and getting a knob on the end. <laughs> what else do you need? Really? <laughs> the plant lord is so above sex. He would just be like, "What's a penis? I don't even care." <laughs> I don't it's even true. care. Here, look, I'll grow one and then just throw it on the floor and let it die. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so 
he makes this offer to the Earthlings. Moisture! Uh, yes. Sorry, I had a Dune moment. <laughs> and Dr. John wants to take the deal. Again, like, just what a hippie, you know? And Stilton, Dr. Stuffshirt, still kind of annoying, doesn't want to take yeah. it for various sensible reasons, I think. And they, they're going to, like, I guess they decide to think about it, or for whatever reason, they're going to go to sleep. And this is one of the details in the story that I don't really feel is necessary, but it's like the plant lord gives them a safe place to sleep, but Stilton, because he's such a stuffed shirt, is like, I don't want to sleep where the plant lord tells me to sleep. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he also won't eat the food. Yeah, I mean, it sucks when you agree with a dick in a story, yeah. but I'm totally agreeing with the dick in this story. <laughs> but yet, I, it was really funny how he talks about what logical hoops he must have had to jump through Stilton to go sleep in the spacecraft that the plant lord built rather than <laughs> sleep in the grotto that the plant lord built. Yeah, it's true. So at any rate, Stilton sleeps in the ship and then he tries the controls again, the controls that wouldn't work before. And he takes him and his like stuff shirt brigade and they <laughs> fly back to Earth. The anti-Martians. Yeah, and they become the anti-Martians. And he, like, I mean, there's just so many, it's such a weird, it has such a pure Clark Ashtonian tone in this story, because it's, like, serious on its surface, but underneath its surface, it's, like, so comedic. Because yeah. he, like, flies the ship back to Earth poorly, and then yeah. crashes, right? Like, he just, like, yeah, he crashes into the water. He's like, Jesus, take the wheel, <laughs> and then just, like, slams into the ground. And then they float in the, wa in the ocean for, like, days... <laughs> Because I guess they yeah. don't have radar. Like nobody, right? <laughs> nobody's got like nobody's got satellites yeah. up there going. Oh my god, it came back! And then eventually they're rescued, and then they start talking junk about the how the plant lord's going to come and invade Earth, and we have to protect. Which, given the time, okay. So, well, there's a, I have another time grape with this because so they they land, but then they they float for several days, and then they have to get rescued, brought by the liner to Lisbon because they have to get towed. Right? I don't know. I kind so, of got the idea that they left the no, flyer. No, no, no. What, what are you talking about? There's rocket ships to just oh, yeah, go all right. around the Earth super quick. That's right. Well, but no, but see, they're, they're, they were towed to Port in Lisbon. Oh, they were. Okay. And then they made their way back to America. So if at this point, maybe they took a rocket ship from Lisbon to America. Yeah. But, but still, that's a lot of days. And then we go back to Mars, and it doesn't seem like a lot of days have gone by unless they're, like, sleeping the whole time. Well, he's, like, te the plant lord's teaching them things while they're up there, so. right? So it yeah, might he's turning them into superheroes. <laughs> oh, by the way, there are superheroes <laughs> yeah. in yeah, this story. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so we've got the anti-Martians who are uh, galvanizing the world against the Martian threat. And then we have the Martian, the, the thumbs-up Martians yeah. who are attending the, the church of the plant lord and he's giving them knowledge and superpowers yeah and like the the anti-martians are doing a really good job down here because they're really they're galvanizing everybody you know the, oh it's communist oh it's anti-religious they, they've just got everybody on their side and at this point the story i mean maybe i didn't catch it but the story itself just starts referring to the thing as the plant, the plant lord, lord. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the story is totally you know drunk the flavor yeah and like <laughs> I I I believe in the plant lord now. The machinations <laughs> of the plant lord. Um, and the plant lord says to Doctor John, "Hey, your buddy, you know, asshole over there, flew back to Earth, but it's cool, man, because I knew it would yep. happen. Yeah, I knew what he was gonna do, so I'm just gonna juice you guys up with my plant lord powers. I'm gonna send you back too, no problem. <laughs> and don't worry about what's gonna happen. You leave it to me. So he does that stuff. I mean, the story goes, the story just goes completely insane yeah, at, this, it does. at this juncture. It's mm -hmm. just this like, is where it gets really exciting. 
It's like a seven course meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he sends the the he builds another flyer for them and sends them back to Earth, and then they land on Earth. Uh, do they land in the same football stadium? Yeah, I think they uh, do. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah it's that's a, hilarious. And then what happens? Oh, there's well. <laughs> I don't need, I mean, where do you even start? Like, the story I, tweets it all like it's just sort of like, whatever, yeah. but... The moment they try to get off the ship, the, 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 the there's people there to arrest them, because they're, they're like, no, we have banned you from ever returning to Earth. Like, really? That was really <laughs> fast. Like, Earth has banned you. And, and everybody's so angry. And then they try to attack the, the Martians. I, what, what should we call this faction? The pro-Martians. the pro-Martians. They try to attack. But they're, they're also, eventually they're called rebel, like rebel okay, scientists, yeah. which is all, like, mm-hmm. like an army of yeah. rebel pro-Martians. So they try to attack the, the rebel scientists, and then the plant lord shoots down a, like a violet beam curtain and transmits mm-hmm. a message to Earth on this shimmering pane of energy, basically telling them, you know, I'm here to take a little bit of water and I can teach you everything. But no, everybody's like, no, no, they're no, not buying no, it. No, no. They've been warned against the machinations of the plant lord. <laughs> so they basically seem to like live in this car and go around the world trying to spread this news. Yeah, but war like, breaks. They live out. in this space car, and there's there's yeah. the good scientists and the bad scientists, and yep. their wives and families. They go class as infamous renegades to be hunted down and killed without ceremony, like dangerous beasts, like. Like, where did the story go off the rails right now and, and like and it's and it's like a like it's like a worldwide war yeah. yeah and then the rebel scientists across the whole globe are crushed except in north america where yeah. dr john and his like rebel leaders are like involved in like a last stand battle as i yeah because yeah. they've got a supercar like, and superpowers <laughs> and then and then they're about to be defeated yeah. And that finally brings us to reading five. (laughs) Through the smoke-smothered air, a fleet of coppery golden cars descended to land on the battlefront among the Martian adherents. There were thousands of these cars, and from all the entrance ports which had opened simultaneously, there issued the voice of the plant lord, summoning its supporters and bidding them enter the vessels. Saved from annihilation by this act of Martian providence, the entire army obeyed the command. And as soon as the last man, woman, and child had gone aboard, the ports closed again, and the fleet of space cars wheeling in graceful and derisive spirals above the heads of the baffled conservatives soared from the battle clouds like a flock of reddish golden birds and vanished in the noontide heavens, led by the car containing Gallard's party. Now let me me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Is that the end of the story? No. No. Oh, no. Let me ask you a question, Phil. Are they going back to Mars? No. What? No. Where do they go? I'm going to smack somebody else in the face. They they go to a little planet we like to call Venus. Now, let me tell you a thing or two about Venus in this era. So, in the current era, 1947 Venus, it's like covered in dinosaurs and evil bacteria. (laughs) So well, one side is covered in just a boiling swamp, and that's the side that faces the sun. The other side is all continent, and it's covered in dinosaurs. <laughs> Which is funny because if you remember, in a uh, slightly post-Atlantean yeah. era, just as Atlantis was sinking, we followed the adventures of two very old scientists who. 
Oh, what was the name of that planet? Spanamoe. Spanamoe, which is in the modern tongue, Venus. And what was it then? It was covered in plants, sentient plants that turn you into plants. I'm just saying, maybe this is all an illusion. Continue. (laughs) I don't think it's an illusion because these rebel scientists, they murder a bunch of dinosaurs. They survive the evil bacteria. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the planetary lord. They basically become like a hippie commune. They get, you know what? They even get used to the perennial tropical climate. Oh, they get so happy about that. And then they friggin' they just set up some water transmitters, and (laughs) as my note says, kick ass in service of the plant lord. I guess is, and that's the end of the story, right? No, (laughs) no, Tim, you fool. (laughs) Meanwhile, back on Earth, (laughs) a giant seed. Hang on. Yeah, does he say how big it is? Um, Yes, they're descended from the clear heavens, a mile-long seed, flashing like a huge meteor, terrifying the, oh, Clark Ashton Smith, superstitious Asian peoples. Hey, look, he calls it like he sees it. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I would be really freaked out and maybe a bit superstitious if I saw a giant seed a mile long coming down at me. Being superstitious has anything to do with it. I think that's just terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it plants itself, and then it starts growing. And they can actually, like, in the valleys in that area, they can hear it growing. They can hear the giant leaves unfurling. It's it sounds kind of horrifying. Okay, um, I mean, should we just read the last? I, I'm just so exhausted yeah. by this story at this point. I can't. <laughs> yeah, let's just like I don't even know what to say. About let's it. just go to the last reading. Frantic efforts to stay the progress of the plant were made by armies with bombs and cannon, with lethal sprays and gases, but all in vain. Everywhere, humanity was smothered beneath the vast leaves like those of some omnipresent upas, which emitted a stupefying and narcotic odor that conferred upon all who inhaled it a swift euthanasia. Soon, the plant had netted the whole globe, for the seas offered little or no barrier to its full-grown stems and tendrils. When the process of growth was complete, the anti-Martian moiety of the human race had joined the uncouth monsters of prehistoric time in that limbo of oblivion to which all superseded and outdated genera have gone. But, through the divine clemency of the plant lord, the final death that overtook the diehards was no less easy than irresistible. Stilton and a few of his associates contrived to evade the general doom for a while by fleeing in a rocket ship to the Antaretic Plateau. Here. As they were congratulating themselves on their escape, they saw far off on the horizon the rearing of the swift stems, beneath whose foliage the ice and snow appeared to melt away in rushing torrents. These torrents soon became a diluvial sea in which the last dogmatists were drowned. Only in this way did they elude the euthanasia of the great leaves which had overtaken all their fellows. <laughs> this story is an utter delight. It it really is. And I, I think maybe it couldn't have happened without that kind of crazy contest yeah. they had going. It's definitely a Smith story, but I'm pretty sure that some of this stuff was definitely in that guy's pitch. Like, and then he takes them to Venus and hey. <laughs> sure, why not? I got no problem Let's with do that. Do it. <laughs> and I like I have to wonder if the I like to think that the like difference in viewpoint between the two scientists was uh, purely a Smith edition because it feels even that feels similar to what was the um, 
what was the story with Yaounde and uh, and Ivan where like you have the like the two oh yeah the, the priests of Yaounde yeah they're like necromancers they're right he, he, door to they have, yeah they have different you know they have very um, or at least fairly clearly defined differences in how they think about the world and this one is just like mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just it hates the story hates that doctor yeah. uh, doctor stuff shirt so much he's a conservative like, and a him. dogmatist. <laughs> But he sticks it to the end. He stays alive till the very end. Probably like one ass. of the last people alive. Never gives up. Keeps fighting for humanity. Doesn't become a super Venusian to go live and strangle dinosaurs to death or whatever they're doing up there. It's such a crazy story. Like I, I to the point that I can't even really think of other interesting things to say about it. Yeah. It's just fascinating and bizarre. Mm-hmm. Like another thing is why, like what, <laughs> what. What so the plant lord like for all intents and purposes he's he it is just it's like it's written as an omnipotent god yeah. right then why why didn't it just send that seedling at the end in the first place I guess maybe it needed I was thinking about this too maybe it needed all of this stuff to happen maybe it needed a certain amount of people to be cleared off the earth maybe it needed humanity mm. to expend its resources in like a giant world war. Before it was able I mean, to take unless, over. Unless it's unless it's that it's I mean, unless it really is an asshole job. I, that's and probably like, <laughs> and it doesn't get like okay, well, hear me out. Its plan all along, because it knew humanity so well, was never to get the water from Earth. Mm. It was always to get the water from Venus. Oh, but it yeah. knew <laughs> but it knew to get the humans to do that, they needed to go through this crazy process to finally agree to go to Venus. And then once that was done, it, it so it was like screw you Earth. I'm just gonna like reproduce and shoot my seed over there. But there's but there will be no water transference between Earth and Mars, right? Because no, the water transference. Just gonna use the water from, there. And the other one, the original plant lore is gonna get the water from Venus because the humans are there now with their transmitters. <laughs> Maybe um, it was foreplay. <laughs> is this a sex story? I think so. It's Clark Ashton Smith, of course, it's a sex story. Not every story he writes is a sex story. Sometimes they're... No, this is a sex story. The plant lord just <laughs> reproduced. And it, it had a little foreplay, a little slap and tickle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I love this story in the way that you might love a, a member of your family that's out of its mind. Right. His or her mind. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I love it the way that you love a B-movie. Yeah, there's seven different yeah. stories in this one story. It's just a good bargain. Actually, both these stories remind me, and Tim pointed this out not on the podcast when I was complaining about how I thought I hated <laughs> these stories. And he was like, oh, I'm surprised you didn't like Vault of Yovambis. Y- it's like a Dan O'Bannon story. And this one also is actually, it's a lot like the bad Dan O'Bannon movies of the mid-80s, like uh, Life Force yeah. and... Um, his remake of uh, Invaders from Mars that are both oh, like, yeah. like crazy yeah. go anywhere, do anything like sci-fi horror stories that like refuse to calm down and just be one thing. And because this story is just like, it's all hyped, hyped up. It can't, it can't, it can't stop. No. It like doesn't even tap the brakes when it goes past Venus. <laughs> nope. Like, we're still going. We're still going. <sighs> what an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying by that, I mean 1947. Yeah, um, I'm done. I'm out. Go ahead, Ruth. Wrap it up. And next, well, next week we'll be on back on Mars in a uh, very, very different Mars, but a slightly later story: uh, the vaults of Yovambis. All hail the plant lord, <laughs> and good night. All hail the plant lord. 
this is damnable. It is contrary to all law, decency, and order. The U.S. government should do something about it immediately.